Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. Well, if 2020 has taught us anything at all, it's taught us that we haven't got everything figured out. We as modern people, we're living in this post-enlightenment age and it's this age that's given us a promise. It's actually told us a couple of things. It's told us that because of our technology, because of our science, because of our intellect, because we are these progressive people that, that we can actually solve and we have the answers for any issue or any problem that would arise, whether that be individually or in a community or in a nation or even the world. And then all of a sudden, 2020 arrives. I mean, how's that thinking going for us right now? I think we could appreciate that this year is different to any other previous year that you and I have ever experienced. Even as a church, I don't think in history that there's been such a worldwide change in the way that the church looks, the way that we've had to form and reform in such a short period of time. We started off back in church history at the very beginning. We started off meeting from house to house to house to house. And now it appears we're meeting from screen to screen to screen to screen. The church really has taken on a different form. And it really makes us think and reconsider, okay, what does it mean to actually be the church in 2020? It's a great question for us to be able to think about. Within four months, 2020 has taught us really, really well. It's taught us that we haven't got everything figured out. It's taught us that there's still uncertainty and there is still mystery that each and every one of us are subject to. It's let us know that we don't control everything in the world, that there are things that are out of our control and all of us come under those things that are out of our control. 2020 has taught us a lot of these things. A lot of things are very, very uncomfortable, by the way. Which brings this counterintuitive thought, which I really believe is where we are. I believe that this year has positioned us as the church in a far better place to actually hear the message of Easter. To hear what happened on that very first Resurrection Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, and to engraft those truths into our life to live out in this world. Resurrection Sunday, that very first Easter Sunday, broke out into a world that was full of complexity. It was full of uncertainty. And yes, it was full of disappointment. Their first Easter was an earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting moment in human history that no one was ready for. No one was ready for it. And guess what? Truth be told, we're still not ready for it in the year 2020. Consider these words of Annie Dillard. She writes this, she says, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake up someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. As your senior pastor, I have one prayer for this Easter Sunday. It is that our beautiful God, that he would indeed draw us out to a place where we can never, ever return. For our King and our Lord, he has risen victoriously. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will one day return. Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed.
You know, Good Friday, as we kind of looked at um, last, uh, like a couple of days ago, it was a violent, brutal, bloody, terrible day, terrifying day. We, we tried to sanitize it in the West, you know, with our church services and all that. We, we really try to sanitize it, but we need to understand that this was a terrifying, bloody day. There, there was nothing good about it. There was nothing nice about it. There was, there, there, there was nothing wonderful about it. It was a violent, violent day. And that's just what it looked like from a human perspective. Could you imagine what it looked like from a heavenly vantage point? To actually see the full wrath of God being poured out in completeness, focused on one solitary individual in God forsakenness. Golgotha is that place where all of the great crimes of humanity, past, present and future, where pride, rivalry, blame, violence, domination, war, empire, all of these great sins, they are dragged out into the searing light of divine judgment. Good Friday lets us know absolutely emphatically, for God so loved the world that he sent himself. Good Friday was the day that was always um, going to happen. Israel's scriptures had pointed to this. In fact, generations earlier, Abraham had taken his son Isaac up upon a hill that was to be that same hill where Jesus was to have his coronation service generations after. And you can understand and appreciate as we learnt on Good Friday that this was not the kind of coronation service that a king or earthly king would anticipate. But then again, Jesus is no ordinary king. So today I want to do two things in this message, only two. By the grace of God, number one, I want to hopefully remind us of what happened on that first Easter Sunday. And the second thing I want to do is to launch us or possibly even relaunch us into what our response should be um, to what actually happened on that first Sunday. So number one, what happened? And we're going to use John's gospel to do this. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John and our Kalamanda family, you, you will be because I know you did a series in the Gospel of John last year. John has this theme that is thread throughout his entire narrative. And it's a theme that kind of becomes very significant at the point of Jesus' death. From John 19, verse 28 to 30, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation in this particular um, scripture. It says this, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put in a hyssop branch, and held it to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. It is finished. In the Greek, that is one solitary word. Tetelestai. One word. It is finished. It's a curious word, I think. I think it's a curious thing for Jesus to say. Immediately in my mind, I think to myself, well, if it is finished, what exactly was finished? What was finished? And it begs another question if you really think a little bit more deeper. If something had been finished, does that mean that something new has now begun? If you were a Roman merchant living in first century Palestine, or um, living in the first century, and someone paid um, off a debt to you in full, you would have written on the bottom of that debt sheet, Tetelestai, paid in full. 
And that word is quite significant for us as followers of Jesus Christ. As we read on in the New Testament, in particular we read in the Pauline epistles, that, 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 that understanding or paid in full all this language, all this word, all this word picture of redemption to be bought back is used over and over again in order to describe what has happened with our personal salvation and our security. God has bought us back. Our sins are paid in full. There is great truth in that. But as John uses this scenario over here, we need to understand and recognize that he's going far beyond an understanding of our own personal salvation. And let's face it, we are products of our culture and our culture is full of individualism. And sometimes we, even as Christians, we see salvation as something that is so personal, not knowing that what Jesus has done on the cross actually goes beyond you. It goes beyond me. It actually reaches out even into the furthest part, even into changing this cosmos. What John is talking about actually goes beyond and extends beyond your personal salvation and my personal salvation. And think about it. Jesus is a Jew, okay? He's a Jew, all right? He's not speaking Greek. You know, like, like, like um, uh, um, John's writing this, and he's writing it in Greek, but, 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 but Jesus is not speaking Greek. He, he's speaking Aramaic. And anyone who is around and actually hears him on the cross and hears him actually say in Aramaic, it is finished. In their mind, they would have known Israel's scriptures and they would have immediately gone back to a place in Genesis. That, that, that phrase, it is finished, it would have immediately taken them back to the creation narrative in the book of Genesis and in particular what happened at the end of the sixth day when it says that the heavens and the earth were finished. You see, John in his gospel, he's using this moment, he's actually using this point where Jesus says, it is finished to point back to the creation narrative in the book of Genesis. And if you think that sounds far too fetched, well, understand this. From the very first sentence of his gospel, John has been doing exactly this. The entire narrative of John has creation in mind from the very beginning. Listen to how John begins his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The very first verse, the very first sentence, John is taking us back to the very beginning of our Bible, where in Genesis 1, verse 1 says, Get this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And consider how John's constructed his gospel. How many days of creation are there? Well, there's seven. Very interesting that John actually uses a couple of signs or miracles and threads them throughout his entire gospel. Now, John actually says that there are many signs that Jesus did, but he handpicks only a few and threads them throughout his gospel. Can you guess how many signs there are? That's right. There's seven. Seven signs. Starting at Jesus turning water into wine and the seventh being the crucifixion. Well, there's actually eight because the resurrection is another sign. But that's a sign that is in a completely different category of which we're going to be speaking into today. So what exactly has Jesus finished on the cross? Had he finished the work he'd come to do? Had he finished fulfilling every prophecy about himself? Had he finished what was necessary to satisfy the justice and the wrath of God? Well, there's truth in all of these things, but in John's gospel, he has in mind to tell us something else. He's telling us something that he's been telling us from the very first sentence, something about creation. Genesis 2, verse 2 to 3 in the creation narrative. Let's just quickly look at it. 
um, reading from the NIV says this, verse 2, But the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from the work of creating that he had done. Now picture this. God finishes his work and then he rests. Jesus cries out, it is finished. And then for three days, Jesus rests. Maybe you're starting to pick up what John is trying to tell us in his gospel. Consider how each writer of the Resurrection Sunday actually pens their account. This is really informative. John in John verse uh, 20 verse 1 says this, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. In Luke's account in chapter 24, he says this, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. What about John Mark? Mark 16 verse 9 says, When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. And what about Matthew? Matthew again, Matthew 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Just as Genesis tells us about the first day of the first week of creation, all four riders of the resurrection, of Resurrection Sunday, are also telling us about the very first day of the first week. But this is not the first day of the first week of a new month or the first day of the first week of a new year. No, every single writer of our Gospels, every Gospel is spelling out for us something so significant. Early on the first day of the first week of new creation. You see, when Jesus cries out, it is finished. All creation has been finished to make way for the bursting forth of new creation. Jesus has brought a story as old as creation to its climax. He has completed the dark chapter of the story, full of hopelessness, full of shame, full of despair. This chapter that was marked indelibly with death and sin is now finished so that a new page can be turned and a new chapter can begin and the story can reach its solution. You see, John, along with the other gospel writers, makes a profound announcement, a declaration. He says, it is a new day and we are now in new creation. And this is precisely what God has been saying through his prophets for generations before. Consider Isaiah 43 verse 19. I know we love using these scriptures for our little church campaigns, but, but understand what God is actually saying. Isaiah 43 verse 19, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in wasteland. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, God gives the Apostle John a revelation to reaffirm everything that has happened up until this moment and actually everything that is still happening right here, right now in 2020. Revelation 21 verse 5 says this, He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. How incredible that God's solution for a creation that has been marred and defaced by sin and death is not to abandon it, not to evacuate it, not to condemn it, not even to destroy it. But God's solution is to remake it, to make it new 
again. And this is precisely what bursts onto the scene, what is inaugurated on that very first Easter Sunday. This is the kingdom of God being inaugurated. This is the new creation bursting out and bursting forth into this world. And this is why on that Sunday, it was the first day of the first week. And that week was absolutely new in every possible way. But for something new to begin, something old had to finish. Good Friday makes its declaration. It is finished. But as we fast track from Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday, on today, Resurrection Sunday, it grabs us by the shoulders and shakes us, trying to bring us to our senses. And it shouts, it says, something new has begun. This is the first day of the first week of new creation. The kingdom of God is inaugurated. New creation with all of its life and all of its vitality is now in play. It is now in session. The victory has been won. And get this, now that the victory has been won, the victory must now be implemented. Did you get that? The victory has been won. And now the victory must be implemented. And that brings us to our second point, our response. What is our response? Well, I said earlier that um, I hoped, well, what did I say? I said I wanted to hopefully remind Christians about what happened on that first Easter Sunday. Now, I've been a pastor for over 20 years now. I've been a senior pastor for coming into eight this is actually my ninth Easter service, my ninth Easter message um, for, for New Spring and my first for Kalamunda. Over all this time, I've actually observed that there are still many, many Christians who are still in the dark as to what actually happened on that first Easter Sunday morning. Maybe today is the first time you are actually hearing about new creation, that all creation has been finished and new creation has been begun. Um, but now we know. Our salvation is not a ticket to get to heaven. It's not. It's not. We are not waiting our time. We are not buying our time here wanting to escape earth to go to heaven. The scripture does not say that. Scripture does not tell a story of us leaving earth to go to heaven. The, the, the end of the, the story is heaven coming to earth. That is what it is about. Easter declares that this is a new day. And with new days, there are new tasks. Because the victory of God has taken place, now this victory is being implemented in and through God's covenantal people. God has always had a strategy in play. His strategy was been from even speaking through the, the Israel scriptures. He said it is going to be a transformed Israel that's going to transform the world. It's going to be a renewed Israel that renews the world. As we go through the story, we understand and recognize that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the suffering servant. He is the legitimate true Israel. And now we who have given our life to Jesus, we are engrafted into Christ and now we are found in Christ. Therefore, you and I, we are those new people. And God's strategy and God's plan is that it is, it is a transformed people who go out and transform the world. Consider 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 as Paul speaks to the church in Corinth. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. In the world after Easter, that very first Easter, the Holy Spirit says to you and to I, He says, imagine a world. 
Imagine a world that's beyond violence, that's beyond war, that's beyond greed, beyond poverty, beyond disease, beyond exploitation, beyond the tyranny of economic self-interest, beyond the wreckage of ruthless competition. Imagine that kind of world and now move in that direction because that is what new creation looks like. And we can only be um, partakers and invited into doing this if we ourselves are immersed in the story of God. We need to understand our place in God's grand narrative. We need to know God's interactions and God's relationship with Israel. We need to know the story of Jesus. We need to know the story of God and the world. We need to understand and be engrafted into his story so that we can go and tell and retell and declare and make the announcement that Jesus, the true king of the world, he has risen victoriously and right now he is making all things new. We are both the sign and the means by which this new world, which had been uncomfortably launched from within creation by the creator God himself, acts in the Son and now is acting by his Holy Spirit through you and me, his church. You see, we have this earth-shaking message to proclaim. And not only to proclaim, but also to demonstrate. You know, all of us, I, I believe that we would know people and they have fractured relationships. We know people who've been abused by the injustices of this world. We know that, that, that there are people and even ourselves, there is still that lingering feeling of vulnerability and, and brokenness that kind of seeps in. We know people like that. And we look out into a world that is, seems to be just crying out for healing to come. And we have this amazing message that we proclaim and demonstrate to these people, to these communities and in this world that God has not given up. God has not forsaken you. God will not abandon you. In fact, God wants to remake you. He has called his transformed people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to go out and demonstrate and to declare that our King has risen victoriously. And on that first Easter Sunday, it was a new day, which means for you and me, there are now new tasks. You know, I think everyone wants to change the world, don't they? Everyone wants to do it. What do you want to do? I want to change the world. Well, get this. We as followers of Jesus Christ, we are the ones who are number one authorized and number two empowered to actually bring about true transformation in this world. And we wait patiently as we do this for the day when our beautiful Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when he will return because his kingdom has been inaugurated on that very first Easter Sunday. But we understand and we appreciate that when he returns, this inaugurated kingdom will be consummated and there will be no more tears, there'll be no more hurt for our king will return and he will make all things new. But in the meantime, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, lets us know that it is a brand new day. And because it is a brand new day, there are now new tasks that are there for you and I to participate in, in bringing forth the kingdom of God and pushing out new creation into a world that is so obviously passing away.